in most cases, when I have an opportunity to speak, I generally feel I must get right to the very centre of things. And um, usually, before we get very far in the meeting, I will say, let us now turn to the epistle to the Ephesians. <laughs> when my daughters used to come to this chapel years ago, some years ago, I used to see a little look go across the chapel, one to the other, here he is again, dad's on Ephesians once more. And if you come on Sunday mornings, you'll find that we've just about got to the end of chapter 2 in our survey. We've been some months at it. And the possibility, if we meet together next May, I shall tell you we've got, say, through to about chapter 4. Because we're discovering that although we can practically recite it by heart, there's such a mass of wonderful teaching in it that we wonder whether we're ever going to get to the next verse. And yet nobody ever seems to yawn or look at their watch or stay away because they've had enough of it. But this is a different meeting. I rather think that it's our opportunity to take another uh, angle, look at it from another point of view. I don't know whether you know Kipling at all, but in one of his patriotic poems he says, what do they know of England? Who only England know. Well, I said, what do you know of Ephesians? If you don't know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, right the way through to the other end. Who's Paul? Well, you know the Acts of the Apostles. If you haven't got that, it's a mere name. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Who is this Jesus Christ? I need the four Gospels at least. And then when I have the four Gospels, I need the rest of the Bible because when I start reading these four Gospels, do you know what I come to? And it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled, and it was fulfilled. I discover that the whole Word of God can be divided under two headings. Old Testament, promise. New Testament, fulfillment. Taking that in the large, of course. Or if we go further down Ephesians, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Well, you won't know much about that if you don't know anything about the book of Genesis. In whom we have redemption through his blood. You won't know much about that if you don't know Exodus and Leviticus. And when it comes to the next reference of redemption, the redemption of the purchased possession, at long last you'll have to revel in that little book called Ruth. Otherwise you'll never fully understand a kinsman redeemer. Now that's just touching a few verses in the first half of Ephesians. So you see, it's an exceedingly wrong thing to say because we see our calling so definitely revealed in Paul's prison ministry that our Bible consists of four small epistles. It doesn't. We need the whole word of God from beginning to end. But, because we read the whole scriptures coming from the one God, concerning the one Saviour, that doesn't mean to say that we try to fit ourselves into all the callings. I do remember reading that a chameleon once was given a very severe test. You know, they put him on a green baize cloth and he turned green. And then they put him on the polished mahogany table and he turned pink. And then they put him on a scotch plan and he exploded. <laughs> you see, you can't fit yourself in to a calling that's to be on the earth. The meek shall inherit the earth. 
and at the self same time maintain that you're going to heaven. Otherwise, you're believing a contradiction. You cannot be the bride of the Lamb and the body of Christ at the same time because Ephesians says the body of Christ is the perfect man. And that isn't the word that includes men, women and children. It's the word which is translated a husband. And I'm morally certain God will not tolerate a bride who's a perfect husband. Oh no. We want both. Otherwise there will be forever imperfect. And so on you see. We need all the word of God. And so our thought this evening is to take one of those tenets that we had run over this afternoon, and I shall more or less have to say the same thing again, but it will be said perhaps from another angle, and even the Apostle Paul said, to say the same things to you, to me, is not grievous, and for you it might be safe. And that's a fine word, that word safe. It looks like our English word asphalt, and it is taken from it. But it really means that the pathway has been given a good grip to your feet. And it was written in Philippians, which is the epistle of running for a prize. So don't despise having a thing said twice, if it's a good thing. For none of us are too steady, but what we could, we can have a good foothold. Well then, when you come to think of this emphasis, as we must do, on the word foundation, I, I'm so glad we all agree already that other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We build on nothing less, as one hymn puts it, on nothing less but Jesus Christ our righteousness, or Jesus' blood and righteousness, whichever way you see it. But here's a question. Somebody mentioned this afternoon, fishermen. How on earth do we know the name of a fisherman who lived roughly 1900 years ago in an obscure little spot of earth just the end of the Mediterranean? How do we know it? We shouldn't, should we? Is there anybody in this meeting who can stand up and tell me the Roman governor who was followed by Pontius Pilate? Nobody? Don't ask me, either. <laughs> you see, my point is this. None of us would have known Pontius Pilate, or Herod the Great, or any of these people. We shouldn't have bothered about thinking of fishermen who's named Peter or John, or Pontius Pilate, or Mary of Magdala, or any of them. How is it we know? Because God has condescended to put it on record. Otherwise, we should not know. So you see, while we all agree that Christ himself and his finished work is the foundation upon which we rest, we have to admit that without the written scriptures, we shouldn't know there was a foundation. So we come at long last to say this, that before ever you can preach Christ, you've got to believe the word. And so sometimes it says, preach the gospel and I notice when Paul is writing about the last days of this dispensation, in chapter 4 that was read by our brother, he said, preach the word. Include it all. It's all necessary. Because it's inspired and it's one whole. 
Sometimes you have to meet folks who are really concerned. They say to you, how can you tell that the Bible is true? Well, how can you? I'll tell you one of the best ways of proving it is to do something with it that some people never seem to think is necessary. You say, what's that? Read it. <laughs> and you notice when the apostle was giving his, his instruction to Timothy, leaving him behind to look after a church in his absence, he said, till I come, give attention to the reading. It's a sad thing in a service when the reading of the scripture is just a convention. Or we must read a bit of the Bible as a part of our service. You see, if that's read, well, whatever the preacher says, whether it's right or wrong, that might get in, mightn't it? So if you come to a Sunday morning service, we generally have a good reading. Old Testament and New Testament. So that that book shall have its place. And there's another thing. Our Saviour said to some about him, have you never read? In the last book of the Bible, he said, blessed is he that readeth, and they that hear. And you know what I gather from that? That the Bible was intended not merely to be read as a book by yourself, but to be read aloud. It's intended that someone should read it, and you should hear. There's a great difference, you know, between sitting, reading print on a page and listening to it coming through the human voice. That's how God intended. If you don't believe me, try it. Take some passage that seems a bit indifferent to you and get somebody who can just read, maybe even be eloquent, and just, just have a sensitiveness to the words they're reading. You say, well, I never realised it was so good. Or... I never realised it was so searching. So here's an emphasis upon the fact that it was written in order that it may be read. Well then we get also our Saviour's challenge. In our version of John's Gospel, our version reads, Search the Scriptures. And of course that is a very wise command. The Bereans were commended by God because they searched the scriptures daily to see whether the things that were taught them were so. And the, the spirit that we seek to inculcate in this meeting and in all our meetings is a Berean spirit. You see, I'm so constituted, I can't help being enthusiastic and emphatic, but I'm not ramming it down anybody. I'm not softening it. I'm not apologising for it. But I do hope that when it's all over, you are going to start. You're not going to say, oh, well, that's another meeting over and finished. No, you say, I'm going to look that up. I'm going to see for myself. I'm going to make sure that what he said is true. And you'll stand then instead of swaying. You know, one of the most pathetic figures in the New Testament is a lovely soul. His name was Barnabas. We owe a tremendous lot to Barnabas at the beginning. He went all the way up to Tarsus to find Saul and bring him back again because of the work at Antioch. Saul had gone home. He couldn't get anyone to listen to him. They were all afraid of him. Barnabas brought him back. And then we get the tragic statement in the epistle to the Galatians. That although he stood with Paul and the elder, the leading ones at Jerusalem, Peter and James and John gave the right hands of fellowship to Barnabas and to Saul, 
Yet the very same chapter says that when he was with Peter, and when Peter dissembled, Barnabas went over as well. Even Barnabas was led away. Oh, what a shocking thing. To stand strong with a strong man and go over with a weak one. What a need, what a need that what we do believe, we believe because God has said so. Not because somebody else has written a lovely book and it's all on our shelves if we like to dip into it. That won't stand you in the evil day. And so we have a need to stress the fact that this is as much a personal matter as our individual salvation and faith at the beginning. So Christ, as far as I interpret John 6, did not say to them, search the scriptures. He was saying to them, I recognise that you do. He was speaking to a nation that prided themselves on being people of the book. When Herod was a bit disturbed and he heard a rumour that some wise men were seeking the king of the Jews. King of the Jews, said Herod. Oh, what's this? He said to the scribes and the Pharisees, where should he be born that is called king of the Jews? Oh, I said, in Bethlehem. For it is written, and then they quoted the prophet Micah. They didn't have to go home and find it. They knew, like that. But not one of them went to see. Did you see that? Not one of them went to see. It was the poor ignorant shepherds that went to see. And the wise men from the east that went to see. But the people that could quote the scripture never went. So our Saviour said, you search the scriptures. But in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me and you will not come to me that you might have life. And then he says, Moses, in whom you trust, condemns you. For he wrote of me. That's our Saviour's testimony. So that you see, in all our searching, if we are not led to Christ continually, we've somehow missed our way. When Paul wrote to young Timothy, he said, From a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation. If I put a full stop there, that's not quite true. They make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. That's the goal. Well now supposing we look from another point of view. For some month or two, on the Thursday evenings in this chapel, we have had before us the great epistle to the Hebrews. Again, you see, we who are not Hebrews, and we who entertain no idea that we're ever going to walk the golden streets and go through the pearly gates, every gate bearing the name of the children of Israel on it, we don't believe that. And yet we spend a couple of months on the epistle to the Hebrews. Why? Because it's God's word. And he can teach us by analogy and example some lessons we may not get if we never read that. And you know that that epistle to the Hebrews, among other things, puts the Lord Jesus Christ in the absolute centre. First chapter is the express image of the person of God, and then by inheritance is but much better than the angels. And then in chapter 2, he takes the place that Adam forfeited, and in chapter 3, 
Moses is a servant in the house and Christ is the son who built it. And so it goes on chapter after chapter. Priests, oh they die, but he ever liveth. Priests, they stand daily, but he sat down. For his offering was once and never need to be repeated. Sacrifices, it is impossible that the blood of bulls and goats should take away sin, but a body is now prepared me. And chapter 1 says, the heaven's going to be rolled up like a scroll and put on one side. Oh dear. But he says, but he's the same. He remains. And when you get to the last chapter of the Hebrews, he says it all over again. Jesus Christ the same. So here's an epistle where it's the person and work of Christ which is the dominant note. So how does Paul, and I believe Paul wrote Hebrews, how does Paul start? He doesn't start with the work of Christ at all. I think it's time we, we looked at the book, don't you? Just a word or two on the way in which the Apostle has emphasised the, the Word of God when he was going to speak about the Christ of God. Hebrews 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. You see, the first thing he says when he refers to Christ is that he has spoken unto us by his Son. He first of all includes the Old Testament prophets in the variety of ways in which God adopted to give his message to men. And then he sets them just on one side a little and says, Now, I'm speaking to you Hebrews, he said. You are not poor, ignorant, idolatrous Gentiles. You have entrusted to you the oracles of God. Do you recognize now what has happened? Once God spoke through the medium of men, like ourselves. Isaiah, Daniel, Moses, they were all fallible men, and they all needed a saviour. And now he has spoken by his son. And there are two, two thoughts in that second verse that I think should challenge us. First of all, he hath in these last days, if you want to frighten somebody, you go tell them, button on say, do you know the last days are all over? Then well, I'm glad to know that because that's the thing that's haunted me. Some people are worried out of their life about the last days coming. They look down on Moore's almanac every time and see what's going to happen. But you say, friend, I've got something to tell you. From one angle, the last days took place 1900 years ago. Is that so? Yes. The last days are marked by this. That God at last has spoken by his son. And that's the last time he's going to speak to anybody. Till he breaks the silence in the yet future. That won't be gospel preaching then. That shows you some of the marvel, doesn't it? Now the next thing is this. Not only does it say, in the last days he's spoken unto us by his son, but if you've got your Bible open, you notice the word his is in italics. And therefore, it's only put there to make English. But you can't anymore say, he hath in these last days spoken unto us by son. So that makes you, or should make you, look at the original. And then you discover that it's in, not by, E-N, in. And then if you happen to be a Hebrew, or you knew Hebrew, you say, oh, of course, that's what it says in the Old Testament. 
You find in the Old Testament it says, and God spake in El Shaddai, Almighty. God spoke in Jehovah. God is invisible. All these titles of God in the Old Testament or new are just accommodations for our sake. So here's a, here's a statement that in the last days God has spoken in Son. When Peter was speaking about the Psalms, he said the Holy Ghost by the mouth of David spake. Now it says, in some way that we cannot explain, but we stand here and wonder, God hath in the last days spoken in Son. He himself has come in some way and spoken in Son. Then, chapter 2. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip, and possibly it's the other way round, lest at any time they should slip away from us. You say, which is it? Have both friends and be on the same side. You hold on to the book and be sure the book holds on to you. You see, have them both. But if the words spoken by angels were steadfast, now both Galatians 3 and Acts 7 tell you distinctly that the law of Mount Sinai was given through the mediation of angels. So we have a spoken word again by angels now. And every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? Then he goes on to speak about what followed. After the word spoken by angels, we have the word spoken by the Lord, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. So there in chapter 1 we have the spoken word, and in chapter 2. And then you go reading on Hebrews and you clean forget, and perhaps the Apostle Paul wrote, who wrote Hebrews forgot, I don't know, but the Spirit of God didn't forget. But he's left a question, and he hasn't answered it. He said in chapter 2, how shall we escape? And you wait till you get to chapter 12 to find the answer. So here it is. Verse 25. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. This is looking back to Mount Sinai. See that you refuse not him that speaketh. For if they escape not, who refused him that spake on earth? You see the answer? You're going to wait from chapter 2 to chapter 12, but it's there. That's the beauty of the structure of scripture. You've got the question, and you've got the answer, and it's exact spot in the balance of the whole book. Much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven. So the Lord has once spoken on earth. And it was a solemn responsibility when they heard the word spoken from earth. Surely it's a greater responsibility if the Lord has since spoken from heaven. Don't you see that the person who says, I'm satisfied with the Gospels, instead of honouring God, is turning away from what God has said and done. Because the Christ who spoke on earth has since ascended and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high and there he has spoken again. Not through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, but through Paul and Peter and James and Jude and the book of the Revelation. So we do not honour the Lord by saying, I'm satisfied with the Gospels. That is, not, that is not a true attitude. You need it all. But it's the Christ who spoke, whether on earth or from heaven. 
And then just around this thought off, chapter 13. Chapter 13, verse 7. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God. So, the apostle seems to sum up all Christian ministry just like that. Spoken unto you the word of God. Whose faith follow? And you may say to me, well, you were telling me just now what a shocking thing it was for Barnabas to go over with Peter because he seemed to be leading. Whose faith follow? Or well, it depends upon whom you're following, doesn't it? Look at this. Whose faith follow? Considering the end of their conversation, what is it? Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever. And a Hebrew who knew the meaning of the word Jehovah, which is a composition of the verb to become, past, present and future, he said, I see. He's taken and he's fitting out that name Jehovah. He's Jesus Christ the same yesterday, past, and today, present, and the future, the day to come. So you see, what a tremendous lot the Apostle makes to hang upon the fact that God has spoken and how it should influence us with regard to our attitude and relationship. Well, then there are one or two things that I've just noted. They're almost um, so badly written that even I don't know where to begin or end. I'm very glad our brother Mr. Canning got tangled up too. You know, things have a way of coming back like boomerangs, don't they? I'm glad to see the way in which he, you know, Got tangled up with Ohio and all those other words. Good. Well, we'll have more to say about him presently. Or now he's going to feel, you know. I notice this. That the word scripture only comes once in our authorised version in the Old Testament. And it doesn't refer, as far as I can see, to any book in the Bible. Well, it starts you guessing, does it? Do you know where it comes? An angel. Michael comes to Daniel, he says, now I am come to tell you what is written in the scriptures of truth. And he tells him something which isn't in any Bible that we possess. But you wonder, doesn't it? If we enjoy a Bible study down here, I read the principalities and powers, are learning by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. I read that angels desire to look into these things. Have they got a little Bible up there? with some parts of the word of God for their guidance? Well, we won't envy them, we won't say no, but there's the only reference to the scriptures in what we call the Old Testament. Then sometimes it's good for us to see the way in which the Apostle Paul himself has used the scriptures. Take, for instance, the great epistle to the Romans. Paul, an apostle, or Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, Called to be an apostle, separated under the gospel of God. That's what he's out to say. Then he stops himself. Because what he was going to say is this. Separated under the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ. But he puts a bit in brackets. Why? Because of its importance. So we say it again. Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle. Separated under the gospel of God which he had promised before by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Gets that in, you see. This gospel that was so intimately bound up with that man, he called it my gospel. He nevertheless said, 
It's a fulfillment of the promises made from Genesis 3 and from Genesis 12 to Adam and Eve in the garden, to Abraham when he was called, to David, right the way through until at last we come to chapter 1 of the Gospel according to Matthew. We have a long pedigree, a lot of names, and it says, and it was fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. His name should be called Emmanuel, which is God with us. That's the way the scripture's written. Old Testament pointing to him, New Testament beginning to say, and he comes. Here's his birth, here's his life, here's his sacrificial death, here's his resurrection, here is ascension, and he's coming again, and then he must reign. How long? We don't know. He must reign until he put all enemies under his feet and the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And then the Son hands up that perfect kingdom we were reminded of this afternoon and again this evening. That perfect kingdom that God may be all in all. What a blessing. What a wonder to have a place in that calling and to see our title to this high calling of God in Christ. Well now the, the, uh, there are two scriptures that I think need just a reference. Although I'm speaking to you, I'm talking to the converted, and I know you know these two, but it's good to be reminded that the scripture has told us without hesitation how scripture was given and how it came. And the first reference is 2 Timothy 3, and the second reference is 2 Peter 1. We've had it all before, and if you come, if you come next May, uh, chances are we'll have it all over again. 2 Peter, 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. And continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. That's a little aside but a very valuable one. If you look again at chapter 3, verse 10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life. That's what the man could do. He could put his manner of life on a level with the doctrine he taught. That's what some of us would like to be able to do. Would you think I was very modest if I said, I'm not quite perfect yet? I know full well I wouldn't like to put my manner of life on the level with the doctrine I see the doctrine is so overwhelmingly wonderful and mine isn't but this man could put together you have been a follower of my doctrine and my manner of life no wonder his word was with power or if you just turn the page quickly to Philippians and look at another staggering statement verse chapter 4 verse 9 those things which he hath both learned and received and heard look at the way he piles it on and seen in me do and the God of peace shall be with you that's an enviable position isn't it and so he said knowing of whom thou hast learned them don't you think it's one of the evidences that the word of God is true if he can make that sort of character. 
The Apostle Paul had to apologize and feel very sad for some of the things he did in his blindness before he was a saved man. And it was the word of God that was working in his heart that produced this change in character. And then he reminds Timothy, and that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Then comes his statement. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now if you meet one of those friends who tell you that this is the most evil thing to emphasize, right division. It's chopping the Bible up into bits and all that sort of thing, you see. Say, look friend, uh, I don't say I agree with you, but supposing you were challenged by somebody, what scripture would you appeal to, to put in a nutshell, this statement that it is inspired? Well, of course he would say, well, 2 Timothy 3. So you say, oh, I see. 2 Timothy 2 is to be avoided, and 2 Timothy 3 is to be followed. How are you going to make that? 2 Timothy 2 says rightly divide the word of truth, and 2 Timothy 3 says it all inspired. So when we say we divide it, we don't say that one is more inspired than another, or one isn't inspired at all. We say Moses is just as inspired as Paul. And because it's inspired, I dare not put myself there because it doesn't belong to me. The verse in Matthew is just as inspired as the verse in John. John 3.16 offers salvation to whosoever believe it. Whosoever we have a hymn. And the passage I have in mind in Matthew 10 is, Go not into the way of the Gentiles, I am not sent but to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They're both true. Would you never do some somersaulting to be, as it were, take both of them to yourself? One, the great wide outside world, the other limited to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yet they're both true. So inspiration is one thing, and right division is another. It says here, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And the word scripture is just made up of the word to write, graphic. And the word inspiration is just made up of the word to breathe. But you don't breathe what you write. No, but God does. You say, how does he do it? Don't ask me. But you see, we write with a pen and ink or with a typewriter or something. But God takes up a human instrument. And as I've quoted already, I'll quote again, the Holy Ghost, by the mouth of David, spake, without obliterating that man's identity. So the written word is what God breathed. If you'll hang on to that, you'll be proof against the subtle teaching which says that the Bible is a valuable book because it's a record of the gropings of the mind of men after God, a gradually fashioning God. You see? It isn't friends. They might have groped till now and never found him. It was the condescension of God stooping down and using human language, descending to use types and shadows, and gradually leading them on, little by little. God revealing all the time. It's either a revelation, or it's an imagination. And if we're going to depend upon somebody's imagination, it might prove to be a will of the wisp. And then the other passage, just for completeness sake, is 2 Peter, chapter 1. The first question is, how was it given? And the answer is, it's given by inspiration of God. And the second passage is, how did it come? Verse 20, 2 Peter 1. Knowing this first, 
that no prophecy of the scripture is of, its, of, is of any private interpretation. And that's true as it stands. But the strict meaning is, no prophecy of the scripture is of its own unfolding. Well, if it didn't come like that, how did it come? The next verse answers. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Well, you can move in more ways than one. But this is a move that nobody could argue with. And the man who wrote it had been involved in a shipwreck. You remember the story in the Acts 27? How they had to throw out the ballast? How they undergirded the ship? And let her drive. That's the word here, move. But the time the Spirit of God took hold of Daniel or Isaiah, they didn't turn around and argue the point. You might as well argue the point with a tempest. They let her drive. When it was all over, they drew a breath and sat down and searched their own scriptures to see what the Spirit of Christ that was in them did signify. All very mysterious, perhaps. But very plain, if you'll accept what God says. Now, the scriptures then have come because God breathed them. And what he said, they wrote down. And they came by this irresistible power of the Spirit of God. Well, that leads me to the presentation that you have, I hope, everyone has received that little pamphlet. We've made a gift to everybody here of that little pamphlet because we hope that you'll be interested enough in it to say, well, I'd like to pass that on to so-and-so. I said I was going to say something about Mr. Canning, so I'm going to say it now. You see, he's, he's printed. You've, you've actually seen, he showed you the way that, first of all, in my, what they call calligraphy, I wrote something, and then he argued the point, you know, with his wife, and the others said, well, I, I think it's, that's the way up. Oh, that's it. <laughs> well, they got it down at last, you see, and it's printed. Well, then, the other evening, he was speaking, and a most seraphic look came over his face. You know, he just got that rap look. He said, you know, if there's about 80 people there at the chapel, and if they take 50 copies each, that's our whole edition of 4,000 gone. That's what they call wishful thinking. <laughs> but you see, we haven't produced them just to give you one, friends. We've given you one so that you'll say, here's an opportunity. I'm often meeting somebody who says, how do, you, how do you prove this Bible? How do you get about it? Well, it's very difficult, isn't it? So if you open that uh, central page of this, uh, you've got this one here. You see, although what I'm going to tell you has been known since before Christ and supplementary by the New Testament, as far as I've, my search has gone, and I've been digging into things for about 50 years, I've never met anybody who's just put them together. Just happened that they've never done it. Even Dr. Bullinger put down 22 or 24 and forgotten, went on and never, never bothered. You see, we have 66 books in our Bible, haven't we? And 66, you say, I wish it wasn't 66 because that's a bad number. <laughs> but it isn't, friends. No. No. If you look at this, um, at this diagram, run your eye along each line. Now you get the basis. The five books of Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, 
numbers, Deuteronomy. Oh, that's all right. Well, when you come to the next, the next line, Joshua, now you don't think of Joshua as the first of the prophets, do you? You see, when our Saviour, risen from the dead, spoke to his disciples, he says, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms concerning me. Now that is the threefold division of the Old Testament according to the Jewish canon. And you know the word canon is the word translated rule. The rule. So Christ in resurrection endorsed the threefold division of the Old Testament. I'm saying in resurrection because there are some who say that when he came he emptied himself and he didn't know any more than an ordinary peasant. He just accepted what anybody told him. And you mean to tell me that the triumphant Christ, risen from the dead and about to ascend to the right hand, he didn't know any more than the peasant. He said, what I told you before, I tell you now, in risen glory, that he wrote of me, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. So we haven't got to fish round and find what they are. We simply say, whatever is the subdivision of the Hebrew Bible, that's what he endorsed. And we have Hebrew Bibles on the back there. And you'll find it's got three names. Even if you can't translate them, you'll see three words. So you see, you can say to somebody, you don't know a word about Hebrew, but whatever you do, don't point the wrong way, go. See, you say, that means the law. You see? Oh, I remember once in Scotland getting a hearing. I went to a Gaelic church. I picked up their hymn book and I translated the hymn straight away from Gaelic into English. Because I recognised the lilt of it and the chorus. I didn't know a word of it, but it was out of stankies. <laughs> See, well, it got me. <laughs> but anyhow, just remember that. The Hebrew goes the right way. We moderns have changed it and go the other way. Well, now we've got now the prophets, Joshua. Now, Judges and Ruth go together. You see, look, they didn't have books as we have them today. They had a scroll on parchment written by hand. And so, Ruth, just four little chapters in our version, was always put together with judges and made a complete scroll. You don't lose the book, but you lose one number, don't you? Right. Then you have Samuel. But we've got two books of Samuel. Only one. One roll. And kings. And then Isaiah. And Jeremiah is always associated with a little book that comes at the end, the Lamentation. And I'll stop for a moment to tell you. If you were to ask me, how many verses are there in Lamentations 1? I could tell you without opening the book. And so could anybody else who once got the key to it. Do you know? 22. And how many verses in chapter 2? 22. How many verses in chapter 3? 66. Because it, it stops. Instead of saying, Olive, Beth, Gimel, Dolly, it says, Olive, 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 Beth, Beth. It's going through the alphabet. But the middle one goes three times. And then the other chapters go back to 22. So it's already embedded in the scriptures. It recognises 22 letters and often writes the scriptures with those in view. You get acrostic psalms as well. So we have Jeremiah and Lamentations. Ezekiel. Now there are 12 minor prophets. But they're only written as one book. They were always done on one roll, you see. 
you get the bulk of the minor prophets, and you get one like Isaiah, they're just about balanced. So you lose 11 numbers, but you've got 12 books. So we're reducing our number. Instead of having 66 books, we find we've got 49 books in the Bible. Ooh, you say 49, seven sevens. Yes, perfect. That's the way it was written. That's the way it was computed. Well, now I want to prove that. But we might as well go on while we're looking at these layers now. Then it says, it says the Psalms. Now, the Psalms, being the first book, gives its title to the rest. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And if I were to take the Hebrew Bible down from there, and then I said, oh, what's that first one? Torah, you say the law. And what's that one? Nebaim, you say the prophets. And I say, uh, what's that one? Kethubim, the Psalms, I say you're wrong. It doesn't say the word Psalms at all, it says the writings. But the writings were called the Psalms because the Psalms were the most important ones that come at the beginning. So remember that when you're explaining it to somebody, won't you? So there we have Psalms, Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and there's all these peculiar books now coming in. Esther, and isn't it strange? Daniel. Daniel. They didn't quite like to put Daniel among the prophets. Do you know why? He spoke too much about the Gentiles. And they're not very happy about Jonah. Because he did the same thing with Nineveh. And you remember that Christ picks out Daniel and Jonah in the New Testament and says, Daniel, the prophet, and Jonah, the prophet. He puts them in their place. So here we have Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah, and then the book of Chronicles as one book. Now that finishes the Old Testament. Do you know the first verse of the book of Chronicles? Adam, Seth, Enos, right to Adam, right the way down to the last king and the overthrow. And on the last page of the Old Testament are written these words. No remedy. That's it. And that's where you'd be if there was no New Testament. No remedy. Adam, no remedy. You turn the page. The book of the generations of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Emmanuel, God with us. God's remedy. Then we come to the New Testament. Four Gospels and the Acts of the Apostles give us the historic portion. And then we have a group of epistles. James, 1 and 2 Peter, 3 of John and Jude. They are written by those who are called the Apostles of the Circumcision. Then we have seven epistles written by the Apostle Paul while he was a free man. Galatians, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Hebrews and Romans. Then we have seven epistles written by the Apostle Paul after he became the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, 1 Timothy, Titus and 2 Timothy. Then we have the last book in the Bible, the book of the Revelation, but it supplies us with the caps for the, for the columns and we've got seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia and Laodicea. Well now I think if you can give that for somebody and say, now look, that's an erection. That's a structure. That's a building. That uh, just happened. Nobody knows anything about it. Somebody 
Years ago, just came a dumpster stone down there, and he walked off, and somebody else came and put another one of a different size on, and years went by, and somebody put a bit up here. But you say, you couldn't possibly have done it like that. Say, no, of course I couldn't. People who call themselves rationalists are most irrational. Because they say, we've got here a most evident piece of architecture, and there's no architect. I think that ought to be convincing to a person who's got his wits about him to say, well, if that's the case, I ought to look into it. So we'll look into it for a bit and see what warrant there is for just speaking like this. If you turn to the, uh, just the uh, uh, second page, you'll find a quotation from Josephus. Most of you have heard the name Josephus. It'll be an opportunity just to mention. He was a Jew of distinguished parentage, a priestly line, and he wrote a series of books. A very heavy reading, but they have been found to be exceedingly trustworthy. Until about 60 or 70 years ago, the only person who described the middle wall of partition was Josephus. And now they've dug the stone up and proved word for word that Josephus was a trustworthy historian. That's good, isn't it? And here's the testimony of Scaliger, who himself was no mean authority. He said the fidelity, the veracity, and the probity of Josephus are universally allowed. And Scaliger in particular declares that not only in the affairs of the Jews, but even of foreign nations, he deserves more than all the Greek and Roman writers put together. That's fine, isn't it? Now this is what Josephus says. That's what I'm coming to. He says, we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine, and of them five belong to Moses. The prophets, who were after Moses, wrote down what was done in their time in 13 books, but the remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. How firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, no one has been so bold as to either add anything to them or take anything from them, but it becomes natural to all Jews, immediately and from their birth, to esteem those books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in them and, if occasion be, willingly to die for them. Well, a man who can make that testimony and assures you there's 22 books he's worth listening to. So you're not losing anything. Here's a person who would die rather than yield a letter from that book says there's 22, neither more nor less. Well, now that more or less speaks for itself. I've built up this structure with those 22 books. And I don't think there's very much else to say but to ask you what do you feel about this little figure that was used this afternoon? The Lake of Galilee. The River Jordan flows through it. And it keeps very sweet and clean. Because it's not bottled up at the other end. I wonder how many books you've got, friends. Don't ask me, because I'd have to confess I've got crowds. But what are we doing with them? 
I wonder how much of the scriptures you know. But what are you doing with it? Has it been entrusted to you? If so, what about your stewardship? So I'm coming back again where I began just now. Our brother Mr. Kenning has worked hard to get this ready for today. And here it's been printed. Well, it's useful for us this evening. But I don't think I would have bothered if I was going to go only to speak to you because after all said and done, you know the scriptures are true without having a building like this to prove it to you. But I do hope there's going on in your mind this thought. You know, that's a useful thing. I feel I ought to use it. I don't feel I ought to know that. I never bother about it. Well, did you say, yes, I know what you're going to say. It costs so much, didn't you? Well, you can have one, friend, one, for three pecks. But if you want to save money, you buy twelve. Because you get them for half a crown. But if you want to save more than that, oh, it's a tremendous reduction. A whole packet of fifty for seven and sixpence. I have a feeling, I have a feeling that when that day comes, if you invest seven and sixpence in fifty of those, you might get a bigger dividend than you ever get down here for that seven and sixpence. Supposing you've only got one person, fifty shots, and only one person was brought to acknowledge the word of God to be true. Now I didn't know our friend was going to quote from the that numbers of the Berean where I said that in the year 1900 I responded to an invitation to go and hear a lecture on sceptics and the Bible because I was interested in the word sceptics and didn't know didn't care about the Bible at all. And when I went there, I heard something that I'd never heard in my life. I saw something I'd never seen before. And I said to the speaker, as we were going out, I said, what will you speak on tomorrow night? Well, we'll have the good old gospel. Oh, I thought, gospel. They're going to have a lot of singing. That's all I knew. And all day at my business, I was like that. Well, I don't think somehow he's that sort of man, you know. Oh, I ought to let him spar. What's the good? But isn't it good to know that it went like that that night? And I went. I went. And he said, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. I've never heard that before. And it finished me like that. I couldn't take you to the spot because they turned Exeter Hall into the Strand Palace Hotel. But somewhere in the Strand Palace Hotel is the spot where I met my road to Damascus. Now there are some people who wished I never had. But if you value any ministry that I've given you over this last 50 years, it grew out of the fact that a young man gave me a leaflet. And I don't remember what he looked like. I hope I'll see him in the glory. I don't say that everybody that receives the leaflet from you is going to start writing a magazine and so on. That's not the point. But don't despise the opportunity and don't miss the blessing of it, friends. So if you want these leaflets, they've already been done up in packets of 50. Now, 
Since you've been done up in nice little shiny packets, and then you say, I'd have two, please. It's not that easy. I could imagine that that seraphic look will gradually fade. And we don't want that, do we? But of course, if you say, oh, I'll take a dozen, all, and you'd be too glad. But wouldn't it be fine if we felt now you're armed for months to come? Whenever that possibility comes, somebody is seeking some confirmation. Oh, have a look at that. And that's the reason why I took the subject this evening. I felt it would be an opportunity for you, first of all, to respond, and then perhaps to have the joy of ministering to others. Well, now, of course, it's a bit of fun. Don't take it to heart. You're not going to do it to please me, or even to see that seraphic look. But I hope you're going to do it to please him. And that look will compensate for more than all put together. Amen.